You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. tech mishaps. Um, So I'm Shailene. I'm a fiction librarian at the Pratt, and I want to welcome you all to tonight's Writer's Cribs event. Writer's Cribs is a series of writer events that we're doing online due to COVID-19, and we're doing it in collaboration with the Ivy Bookshop, our wonderful partner, whom we're so grateful to, and we encourage you to go online and purchase books from tonight's speaker, Juliet Wells, and other books after this event. And I wanna explain how tonight's event is going to be structured. So for about 20 minutes, Juliet Wells, our presenter, and I are going to engage in a conversation about Emma and Austin and assorted things. And then Juliet is going to be kind enough to give us a little glimpse into her work area. Um, This is the writer's cribs portion of the evening. That'll just be a brief mini tour. And then the whole rest of our hour is going to be devoted to your comments and questions. So please save up your thoughts and you can post them in that last stretch. Um, So I'm just going to introduce Juliet and tonight's topic, which is Jane Austen and the Resilient Mind, Reading Emma Today. Jane Austen was a novelist who wrote and published in a time when authorship for women was frowned upon, so she knew very well what it was like to be highly talented and constrained by circumstances. Her masterpiece, Emma, which was recently and beautifully adapted to the screen by Autumn DeWilde, illuminates how characters can find their own happiness amid limitations. And here to talk to us about Emma the Novel, Emma the New Movie, and All Things Austin is Juliet Wells. Juliet is a Goucher College professor who has created a 200th anniversary reader-friendly edition of Emma. She's also written two books, Reading Austin in America and Everybody's Jane, Austin in the Popular Imagination. Juliet's writing shows great care, not just for Austin's books, but for Austin's readers. And we are so excited to have her here tonight. Thank you, Juliet, for doing this. Thank you. This is going to be fun. Yes, I am excited. So here is my first question. Um, I did notice that most literary critics seem to consider Emma Jane Austen's best novel, her masterpiece. But when you go online, you see that Pride and Prejudice is considered her most popular book. And I was curious about what this this different means. What does it mean when popular taste is different from the rating of what is best by the critics? So one of the things that I love so much about Jane Austen is that she has a passionate readership, a passionate fan base, and she is also just absolutely the best novelist in English, according to many critics. And there are just, there are not many novel, many literary writers in English who, who are both of those things. 
Um, I feel that since it is Shakespeare's birthday, we should acknowledge Shakespeare briefly. Um, but I don't think that many people read Shakespeare over and over again for pleasure in the way that they do read Austen. Um, it's true, Pride and Prejudice is the favorite Jane Austen novel for many, Persuasion, perhaps the second favorite. Hardly anyone that I meet says that Emma is their favorite novel. I hesitate to say that it's my favorite because I love them all so much, but if I had to choose one, it probably would be Emma. And I would say that for me, Emma is, Emma is the richest example of how Austen takes very slender materials and creates a work of great artistry and subtlety that rewards us rereading it again and again throughout our lives. And I do find that in Pride and Prejudice too, but I think there are just, there are more layers in Emma. There's more to think about um, in terms of Austen's depiction of the society of, of Highbury and all the characters in it. I think it makes sense that Pride and Prejudice is the favorite because it's funnier and it has a wonderful love story, of course, and Mr. Darcy and Colin Firth and all the other wonderful actors who've participated in adaptations of that. But I think it really remains to be seen whether the new Autumn de Wilde movie of Emma, which everyone um, you know, is able to stream now if they couldn't catch it in the theaters before we all went home. Um, I think her new movie of Emma has the potential to bring new readers to Emma, the novel, and to help this novel, if this novel indeed needs help, <laughs> to rise in the estimation of Austen's fans. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Emma's actually my favorite, so I um, I like I would like to see it rise in the public estimation as well. Um, and I love the concentration on that one character that you get on her development that I think is more intense, perhaps, than in some of the other novels. So speaking of Emma, um, one thing often quoted about this novel is Austen's remark that Emma is a heroine whom no one but myself will much like. Wondering if you agree with that or what you think might have been going on in Austen's mind when she wrote such a thing. You know, every time I teach Emma with undergraduates, I the first day I enter with a little bit of trepidation to see what the room is going to feel like in response to this character. And sometimes a classroom full of students kind of agree Emma is a terrible snob. She's awful to Harriet Smith. She doesn't have any self-awareness, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. She's so privileged. All of her problems are, you know, white people problems, first world problems, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and all of that is legitimate to say about this character. Um, she, she definitely, she is a snob. She doesn't lose that. She doesn't recover from her snobbery. Um, and I think... It, the challenge for us as 21st century American readers with all of our awareness of privilege is to, to look for the ways in which Emma's experience speaks to the experience of people who, who don't share her wealth, who don't necessarily share her handsomeness, her confidence, and, and to look for how Austin is depicting Emma in relation to, to a family, in relation to a village, in relation to others. In, in the ways that Austen knew how to do. Austen couldn't write about us, but she could write about the kinds of people that she had spent her lifetime closely observing. Hmm. Um, I think that's great. I was interested that you say in your point that she doesn't recover from her snobbery. I mean, do you really think she doesn't make any progress at all in that direction towards the end? 
I don't know. I mean, as soon as Harriet Smith ma marries Robert Martin, mm -hmm. Harriet Smith kind of drops away, and it really does mm -hmm. become true in the novel that Emma will not visit Harriet, and Harriet will no longer be the intimate friend. Once Harriet's parentage is known, once Harriet marries um, marries a man whom whom Emma can respect for who he is, but not not fully. So Emma, Emma does have her, of course, her big moment where Mr. Knightley tells, tells her that it was badly done that she insulted Miss Bates. And that that brings that brings um, some recognition on Emma's part of of what she's been doing wrong. But I, mm -hmm. I don't see that recognition extending, you know, completely to Emma ignoring the class structure. She doesn't. OK. Um, OK. Um... So, well, all right, moving on a little to um, the resilient mind theme, which you suggested for tonight's event. I think when many of us think about Jane Austen, we think about the novel of manners and society. We'll think about dancing and flirtation and courtship. And these are the elements of the novels that the screen versions have emphasized. We don't necessarily think about resilience as something that her novels depict. So can you talk a little about where you see resilience in the novels? Yes, and I want to say a big thank you to the professor Kay Young, who has written about Austin and resilience um, in a book collection called Jane Austen and Sciences of the Mind. Um, and I think that Professor Young is absolutely right to point to all of the moments in which Jane Austen's heroines in particular take a moment, take a breath, remove themselves from a situation, seek meditation and reflection, which with Jane Austen might be code words for Christian prayer. We're never sure. Meditation and reflection, and kind of gather themselves, and then go back and and meet the people um, whom they need to meet. So Jane, um, pardon me, Anne Elliot in Persuasion is an excellent example of someone who is really affected by emotion and mood, and who also knows how to, as my psychology colleagues would say, self-regulate. Anne knows knows about herself that she is. Um, she's an emotive person and she knows how to give herself the time that she needs to recover. And I have a favorite example, which is very relevant to us today from Mansfield Park, not Emma, of Fanny Price and how she, she engages in what we would call self-care by going outside and appreciating um, spring. And this is a passage that I think about a lot every year. And I think I've thought about it more than ever this year, as going outside, taking walks in the neighborhood has been, become even more important than it always is. It was sad to Fanny to lose all the pleasures of spring. She had not known before what pleasures she had to lose in passing March and April in a town. She had not known before how much the beginnings and progress of vegetation had delighted her, what animation both of body and mind she had derived from watching the advance of that season which cannot, in spite of its capriciousness, be unlovely, and seeing its increasing beauties from the earliest flowers and the warmest divisions of her aunt's garden to the opening of leaves of her uncle's plantations and the glory of his woods. And so that phrase, the progress of vegetation, I feel like I'm tracking the progress of vegetation in, in the Baltimore suburbs and looking mm -hmm. for all of the, what's, what's open today that wasn't open before. It's really nice. Um timely. Um, in your, um, in the event description, you had also brought up the point that 
the characters are seeking for their own happiness in the midst of straightened circumstances and that this is something that Austin would herself have experienced as a female writer in her time. Can you say a little more about how Austin might have identified with her characters? Sure. So Emma Woodhouse in Emma is the most confined of all of Jane Austen's heroines because of her devotion to her father, um, the valetudinarian, um, the man who is so anxious about his own health and everyone else's health. And Emma truly cannot go anywhere at all outside her house unless she arranges to help her father manage his anxiety. So Emma can visit other people in her village of Highbury, but only if someone comes and sits with her father and takes care of him. Emma cannot travel away from Highbury um, at all. It's She mentions at one point that she has never seen the sea, which when you, can, when you consider how, how much coastline England has, to never have seen the sea as someone who is wealthy enough to afford travel is, is really quite amazing. Jane Austen was not restricted in that way by loyalty to a family member who required her presence, but Jane Austen was certainly restricted in her movements, in her travel, um, by conventions governing what unmarried women were supposed to do. So Jane Austen could only travel by a vehicle away from her homes if she was in the company of someone else. Um, and there are striking examples in her life of times when she really needed to get somewhere or get away. And she could only do it if one of her brothers, for instance, sent a carriage, sent someone to help her out. She was just not able to, to travel on her own in that way. Um, in Northanger Abbey, Jane Austen's youthful novel, there's an episode that readers will remember towards the end when the young woman, Catherine Moreland, is kicked out of Northanger Abbey um, by awful General Tilney. And Catherine has to travel post, post chase, all the way home um, to her parents' village by herself. And this is the great dangerous episode of the novel. Nothing happens to Catherine, but she's a young, beautiful woman, unaccompanied, making her way um, in what is more or less public transit um, of the era. Jane Austen also would have known really well what it meant to have men's opinions, but also women's opinions, um, helping govern how you interacted with the world. So one of the things we don't know very much about at all with Jane Austen's authorship is how she, how she made the decision and who else might have participated in that decision to represent Jane Austen on her first title page of Sense and Sensibility, the first novel that was published, not by name, not by a pseudonym, not in total anonymity, but with the phrase, by a lady. And wow, we would love to have, you know, the letters that Austen wrote, the diary that she never kept. We would love to have some sort of um, tangible evidence of Jane Austen saying, well, that's fine with me to be known as by a lady that I don't mind at all. Or, oh, I wish my brothers, um, you know, hadn't pressured me into this very conventional way of representing myself. Um, we truly don't know who helped, if anyone helped with that decision. We do know that when Jane Austen died at the very young age of 41 and a half, that her sister Cassandra, who was her elder, a few years her elder, and her closest companion in adult life, Cassandra worked together with their brother, Henry Austen, to publish the two novels that Jane Austen had left 
complete or essentially complete, which we know as Northanger Abbey and Persuasion. And Henry wrote the first short biographical treatment of his sister. There were obituaries that went out in July 1817 when Austin died, and those obituaries in newspapers were the first print identifications of Jane Austen as the author of her works by name. But it was Henry Austen's so-called biographical notice um, published with Northanger Abbey and Persuasion that gave a portrait of Jane Austen. And Henry's portrait is, is terribly conventional. It, it suggests his effort to preserve a, a, a very um, acceptable version of who she was. And we can tell that because he says things like, she never said an unkind word about anybody. Mm-hmm. And demonstrably, even in the small percentage of her letters that have survived to us, she said unkind words about people regularly and I mean, delightfully. So clearly Henry was was presenting a, a, a sanitized or a, a beautified version of his sister. So those are just a few examples. The travel, the authorship identification, and the way that Henry described her after death, where we see Jane Austen really, you know, constrained by the ideas of, of genteel femininity um, of her time. Things would have been different if she were married. Um, she would have had more freedoms in some ways, but... We, as far as we know, she might not have had the time to write that she had in her thirties when she wrote steadily and published all of the novels that we know well. Um, and that's it's interesting to think about the sing uh, the single woman with you know when you look at like Miss Bates and um, mm-hmm. uh, Emma at one point says she's not going to marry and it would be she would have a different kind of experience but spinsterhood is something that um, clearly can bring problems with it in Emma itself. So I wanted to ask a question about annotations. Um, your edition of Emma, which everyone should purchase, has some wonderful little essays in it about aspects of Austen's world. But I was wondering what you would say to someone who just wants to read Emma without reading any notes. How can um, you encourage someone, or perhaps you could give an example of something that we can learn about the period that really enriches our experience of the novels? Sure. So this is this is the beautiful cover for Emma, which I did not draw. This is the work of the Brooklyn artist Dabu Shin. Um, on the Penguin Classics 200th anniversary annotated Emma, which um, is the first of a series of new Penguin Classics editions designed for readers who are not taking classes in Austin, although you can use this edition in classes, and I have done. Um, When I worked with my editor at Penguin Classics to develop this edition, I, I told her my students hate flipping to endnotes at the back of the book, they hate it because the endnotes always reflect the preoccupations of the editor. And if the students actually take the time to find that page at the end and they get there only to discover that the editor has told them something that the editor cares about, but the student doesn't care about, that the students feel annoyed. And I had felt in my years of teaching that oftentimes professors and scholars who write introductions to Penguin Classics kinds of editions and provide annotations and supplementary material, those, I was feeling a gap between what existed in editions and the kinds of questions that my students were asking, what they were confused about. And it's possible, it's certainly possible to read Jane Austen with no annotations at all and have a, have a rich and wonderful experience. It's also possible to get confused and not realize that you're getting confused because Mm -hmm. 
Jane Austen is using a word that means something slightly different than how we would use it. And if you don't, if you don't realize that, you could be going in a in a different direction entirely. And I think for Americans, 21st century Americans, the nuances of the English class structure, which Austen knew intimately from the inside, she assumed that her contemporary readers would share her jargon, would share her references with that. She doesn't explain a lot of things. I think Americans with our capacious concept of the middle class in which mm, all of us are middle class, except those of us who weren't, you know, we come to Austen's novels and she's describing people who own land and are considered gentlemen, but other people who are kind of quasi sort of gentlemen and who's a lady and who's not a lady. And if we aren't compelled by those questions, we can find it very off-putting to, to navigate all of these distinctions. So that's, that's one example in short. So rather than having endnotes that people would be annoyed turning to, my editor agreed that we could have really brief essays on topics like um, dancing, family relationships, social class, um, in which all of the examples come from this novel. Um, I have also found it annoying when my students have when scholars helpfully give you examples from other Austin novels. And you're like, well, I'm not reading that one. I'm reading this one. Can we just support my reading of this novel? And so that's what we did. And we also have a couple maps in the back and illustrations from historic editions of Emma drawn from Goucher College's extraordinary Jane Austen collection, which I can talk about more if you are interested. Mm. Um, yeah, perhaps later. Um, but no, that's great. I really wish that I had had that edition when I was a young uh, high schooler or somewhat baffled by Emma. Um, so we almost, we should probably move to the office tour, but I did want to just squeeze in one movie related question. Um, wondering um, if you could talk a little about what you thought about Autumn DeWilde's version of Emma. How does it compare to the many other Emmas that have been made in recent years? And um, do you have a favorite screen version of an Austin novel? So I didn't know much about Autumn DeWilde's new Emma film before I saw it. And I had on purpose not even seen the trailer because I I wanted to just enjoy the film on its own merits. But I felt for a long time that Emma, as the great Jane Austen novel, possibly the greatest, there had never been one, a single adaptation of it that got everything right. So I felt just with casting that all the various TV and screen adaptations, you know, I'd, I'd like to take this character from that one and this character from that one. Um, so there really was room, I think, for a feature film with a point of view and a real um, artistic conception from a director um, for Emma. That said, I certainly adore Clueless, Amy Heckerling's 1995 film that updates Emma to Beverly Hills. I think that's one of the greatest Austin adaptations. And it's great in a way that leaves plenty of room to re-envision Emma the novel in a, in a period context. So whenever I see a new adaptation of Austin, I always want it to be the best ever. Um, I know from experience that I am not the target audience for adaptations at all. And rarely, rarely do they thrill me. Um, but I'm happy if they thrill, they thrill others. That said, I saw Autumn DeWilde's film twice. I dragged my kids. Um, and I went with my students and I loved it both times. And I look forward to seeing it again. I think it it really gets the mood and the atmosphere of Emma. The costumes are extraordinary and I really like a lot of the casting and even, even some of the decisions that 
that purists um, would say, oh, well, that's not how it happens in the novel. That never bothers me as long as, as, long as things hang together um, in a consistent way. And I think that's really true. So I do hope that that, that film reaches, reaches viewers who wouldn't otherwise think that, that Austin was for them. Yeah. Great. Um, yeah, I loved it too. I, I think I recommend everyone see that if you can. So I actually, I have a ton more questions I could ask, but why don't we move to our mini office tour? And then we'll, after that, we'll open up to questions from our audience. Thank you, Juliet. All right. So I'm not going to show you the Jane Austen socks that I'm wearing because they are on my feet. Um, but they are the turquoise and pink colorway, colorways of Austen socks. There's also a purple color, but I like these ones better. And they have the quotation, um, I declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading, which is the same quotation, which is on the 10 pound note and is hugely problematic because it is spoken by Caroline Bingley in Pride and Prejudice, who's never read anything at all. So awesome. Um, I have both my Jane Austen Society of North America wine glasses with me. These do not usually live in the, in the office. They have water in them. But if you do not know about the Jane Austen Society of North America, it is a group that has regional meetings, including in Maryland, and also national level events. Um, fans and some scholars come together to celebrate Jane Austen and learn more about her life and her works. Behind me, I have some of the books that I'm using for the book I'm writing right now about Jane Austen's historical readers. And because I work at Goucher, which has a Jane Austen collection um, founded by an alumna of the college from 1928, whose idea of a lifelong passion project was collecting historic and rare and also ephemera, ephemeral editions of Austen. Sometimes people ask me, well, are you a collector? And the answer is not intentionally, um, but sometimes things come my way. So I chose a couple of those to show you. Um, this is a book I did not know um, until I came across it in the collection of a Rochester Jane Austen collect collector who was deaccessioning and gave it to me. It is the earliest biography of Jane Austen by a woman writer. Sarah Teitler was the pen name of Henrietta Ketty, a Scottish uh, novelist. And one of the authors that I'm writing about, about whom I'm writing in my current book is William Dean Howells. And this book published in the first years of the, of the 20th century, Heroines of Fiction, includes an extensive treatment of Jane Austen's heroines, um, written for an audience of, you know, girl readers of, of 1902. So very accessible, not designed um, for scholarly readers at all, just for everyday readers. And with some really exceptional um, illustrations by the leading illustrators of the day. So if you wanted to know how you know, the kinds of people who drew the Gibson girls would have imagined Austin's heroines. That's a good one. Two of my prized possessions are historic editions. I do not own any first editions, first English editions of Austin. I don't expect ever to be able to, given what they fetch. But I do have a first American edition of Sense and Sensibility, which is a really ugly looking book, I must say. Um, it's in the original publisher's boards. It was never rebound in leather. It's got this really battered looking label on it. And it has experienced water damage in its life and gotten all spotty. Um, 
1833, Philadelphia, Carrie and Lee. If, if you were an American and you didn't import your books from England, then this 1830s edition was the first complete edition of Austen published in the US. And along with an English reprinting in just about the same year uh, was how people in the next generation after Austen's death would have discovered or rediscovered her novels. So these 1830s reprints were hugely important in ensuring that Austen's um, modest fame during her lifetime did not die with her. And I also have um, prized possession, Sense and Sensibility, the English reprint by Richard Bentley, 1832, which is the first one with illustrations. So here, 1830s illustrators put 1830s costumes on Austen's characters. Um, but this is, again, a really important printing of Austen in terms of history. In addition to books, I have a couple of objects. Um, Jane Austen mentions a kind of wine in, in Sense and Sensibility called Constantia wine. And serious Jane Austen nerds like our Goucher Austen collector um, remembered that reference. And here, I'm gonna stand up and bring this over. The winery in, in South Africa still exists and still makes the wine. And they tell you that it is mentioned by Jane Austen and Charles Dickens and others. And this is my, one of my favorite presents ever from a student. I will manage to open it. Um, she studied abroad in South Africa and she said, look, I went to this winery and they told me it was Jane Austen wine. And she brought me this crate with a special bottle of, of dessert wine, which I'm saving for a special occasion. Um, so, so oh. far it's just, just my Jane Austen wine prop to go with my Jane Austen Society of North America wine glasses. And finally, my other prized Jane Austen related possession is the one that you see me behind me on this chair. This is a replica of a patchwork coverlet that Jane Austen, her sister, and her mother um, designed and made together. And this, these are modern fabrics and don't reproduce the patterns of the original, but the design with this center medallion and diamonds around it. And the edges are incredibly intricate with tiny little diamonds um, arranged in a intricate repeating pattern. Um, the original of this coverlet is in beautiful shape, has been well conserved, and you can visit it at Jane Austen's house. And various talented quilters have made their own replicas of it. And this was a gift to me from my mother, who had a friend of hers who is an, an experienced quilter um, make it. So I think it's wonderful to have something that reminds me that the work of Jane Austen's hands went beyond pen and paper. Jane Austen was also a, a pianist and she copied her own music. She loved to dance. She loved to do lots of things in addition to write. And I think if we think back to the resilient mind question, Jane Austen knew how to have a good life. She knew what, she knew what mattered to her and to the extent that she was able to build her life around the people she cared most about and the activities she cared most about, she did that. And so I like to have a beautiful reminder that 
that she didn't, in fact, hate sewing the way Charlotte Bronte did. She she quite liked it. That's <laughs> my mini toy. Oh, that was fantastic. Um, I feel as though I've been let not in, only into your home, but into Jane Austen somehow, which is really special. So um, let's see. Let's take a look at our questions. Um, and everyone, please go ahead and post a question or a comment or a discussion topic if you like. Um, should I read the... Um, Juliet, do you want me to read a question to you? Would that work? Uh, I can look at the Okay, so here's, the, here's one. Someone who said, I always wonder how critical Jane Austen was of her models for the behaviors she presented in her books. Are scholars aligned on this? Um, that's an interesting question. I think one of the things that, that I find fascinating about Austen is how different trends in viewing her um, have come and gone over the centuries. And so truly 19th century, later 19th century readers and critics did tend to view her as a very prim person, definitely the spinster, wearing, wearing the cap, um, not critical of her society. She was described for generations as, as someone who reproduced the mores of her time. You could go to, go to Austin to find out what England was like in the 1810s, um, said many. And I've always kind of smiled and thought, wow, that no one read Austin's novels very closely to think that, because it's always seemed very clear to me that Jane Austen is, is accurate she does her best to be accurate and realistic in her depictions of her society. And she's also really, really clear about which characters are negotiating, you know, boundaries in the ways that they can. Certainly she doesn't depict open revolution. Um, you know, her characters don't refuse to have mar refuse to get married and run off with their women friends, you know, for utopian lifestyles, nothing like that. But Austin shows shows characters questioning, criticizing some of the ideas that they've been brought up with. And in addition to resilience, sometimes Austin shows us methods of resistance too. So here's a question. Is there a character in her books who you think was autobiographical? Oh yeah, this is fascinating. So Jane Austen used a lot of um, names from her family for her characters, including her own name. Uh, she used Jane twice in her major novels, Jane Bennett and Jane Fairfax, Jane Fairfax and Emma. And Jane Austen used her brother's names again and again. She didn't never used Cassandra, her sister's and her mother's name, except in youthful writings. And scholars think that's because Cassandra was too unusual of a name. You know, if, if you were sort of trying to stay anonymous or more or less trying to stay anonymous in your lifetime, then you wouldn't put a Cassandra in your novels. Um, and certainly many of the male characters in Austen's novels suggest traits of Austen's brothers. Um, but I'm always skeptical of the idea that Austen drew any of her characters directly from life. Um, including um, basing any character really substantially on herself. And I do think that women authors um, 
are often not given credit for being imaginative creators. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been a real tendency in criticism of Jane Austen and also in popular novels. Um, there are lots, and many of you will know, lots and lots of novels that imagine Jane Austen um, as a protagonist, as a mystery solver, as someone in love. Um, and one tendency in a lot of those popular works is to conceive of Austen as inspired by something that happened to her directly. Um, so to take one example, there's a time travel romance in which a Virginia gentleman named Fitzwilliam Darcy goes back in time and Jane Austen falls in love with him. And then she's inspired to write Pride and Prejudice with Fitzwilliam Darcy in it, you know, um, go figure. And I, I find every version of that question, you know, doesn't really do justice to the qualities of imagination that, that Jane Austen certainly and abundantly possessed. So I'm gonna take a break from the questions for a moment and read, read a passage from Emma. This is about Miss Bates, who as Shailene, as you mentioned, is a character mm -hmm. who does in some ways have something in common with Jane Austen. Miss Bates is unmarried, a spinster, um, much the age that Austen was when she was writing Emma and in reduced circumstances. Um, and one of the things that's sly about the novel Emma, and my students and I were thinking a lot about this this spring, is that Jane Austen introduces certain characters at times when the reader is not really prepared to think about them. And so you really do need to reread this novel in order to fit together all of the pieces of of information and insight about the characters. So this description of Miss Bates comes really early on in chapter three. And then Austen doesn't bring Miss Bates back directly for quite a while. And most readers will have, will have forgotten this passage by them. Mrs. Bates, the widow of a former vicar of Highbury was a very old lady, almost past everything but tea and quadrille. She lived with her single daughter, in a very small way, and was considered with all the regard and respect with which a harmless old lady, under such untoward circumstances, can excite. Her daughter enjoyed a most uncommon degree of popularity for a woman neither young, handsome, rich, nor married. Miss Bates stood in the very worst predicament in the world for having much of the public favor, and she had no intellectual superiority to make atonement to herself or frighten those who might hate her into outward respect. She had never boasted either beauty or cleverness. Her youth had passed without distinction and her middle of life was devoted to the care of a failing mother and the endeavor to make a small income go as far as possible. And yet she was a happy woman and a woman whom no one named without goodwill. It was her own universal goodwill and contented temper which worked such wonders. She loved everybody, was interested in everybody's happiness, quick-sighted to everybody's merits, thought herself a most fortunate creature, and surrounded with blessings in such an excellent mother and so many good neighbors and friends and a home that wanted for nothing. The simplicity and cheerfulness of her nature, her contented and grateful spirit, were a recommendation to everybody and a mine of felicity to herself. She was a great talker upon little matters, which exactly suited Mr. Woodhouse, full of trivial communications, and harmless gossip. So that long paragraph, you know, at the end, it's gossipy Miss Bates. And that's the Miss Bates that we remember, because when she starts talking later in the novel, oh, you know, 
she never stops. But but Austin has really laid stress in this early passage on on Miss Bates's contentedness of spirit and happiness and um, universal goodwill. And those are qualities that that Austin depicts throughout her novels as admirable. Mm. Let's see. Um, someone has asked, do we think Jane Austen felt happily or gently amused by human flaws or raging anger? And I am going to take that in a little bit of a di different direction and say there is so much that we don't know about what Jane Austen thought. And I mentioned a few moments ago, we have a fraction of the letters that she would have written in her lifetime. Um, she wrote letters to her family members whenever they were apart. And I mentioned she was closest to her sister, Cassandra, her, her confidant. Whenever one of them was visiting another family member or away from home, they wrote letters you know, daily, if not more often. And if you buy a collected letters of Jane Austen edition, it has fewer than 200 novels, pardon me, fewer than 200 letters in it. That's what we, that's what we have. But scholars guess that Jane Austen probably wrote more like a few thousand letters based on the pace of her writing. So for all kinds of reasons, letters didn't survive. Letters were destroyed. We believe that Cassandra, who outlived Jane by decades, likely destroyed many of the letters that she had in her possession, probably because she viewed them as too private and wanted to protect her sister's privacy and her sister's reputation. Uh, so it seems really unlikely that anyone is going to discover a cache of Jane Austen letters in their attic, um, although, you know, it could always happen. So there's so many aspects of Jane Austen's life and authorship that we we just have little fragments um, in, this, in the letters that we have or in other sources. And yes, we would love to be able to to ask Jane Austen, you know, what did you really think about human nature? You know, you, you yourself, not you refracted through your narrators, were you amused or, or angered? And I've never been one who, who feels really confident in speculating about what Jane Austen thought. And I can tell a story. So I mentioned the Jane Austen Society of North America, purveyors of wine glasses. The first time I visited, um, and spoke at a conference, an annual meeting of JASNA, Jane Austen Society of North America. I was still in graduate school and I didn't know much about fan organizations. And I gave a talk about Jane Austen and her accomplished women, representations of amateur artists and in her novels and also Jane Austen's amateur arts herself as a musician. And I suggested that because Jane Austen, like so many 19th century women writers, doesn't choose to write about the experience of a public writer, that we could instead look at characters like Fairfax and Emma, who is an excellent musician, but who will never play upon a public stage, you know, who, is, who has talent, who has dedication, but the channels available for Jane Fairfax are drawing room performances and um, teaching as a governess. I suggested that, that those are the places where we see Jane Austen reflecting on women's creativity. So I gave this talk. And afterwards, uh, an elderly man stood up and he said, I feel certain Jane Austen knew she was a genius. And I thought, you know, how do you feel certain? How, does she speak to you? Does she appear to you? You know, it's, 
I don't feel certain about, about Jane Austen. I feel every time I read her novels, I feel like I'm in the presence of a mind and a spirit. Um, and that has something to do with the historical woman who wrote books, whose name was Jane Austen and who sewed coverlets and everything else. But I, I have never had that, that kind of confidence or certainty. And maybe that's because I went to grad school and it, it beats it out of you, but I, I, I'm in awe of fans who feel that kind of connection and certainty to any author. Hmm. Um, hi, Juliet Shailene. Yeah. Um, we have a question from Hunam on Facebook. Um, she says, do you have a favorite heroine? An Austin heroine. Um, do you, I don't know if that's that's probably not for me, but I don't have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Juliet, do you have a favorite? I don't. You you don't have a favorite novel, so perhaps you don't want to. Um, to pick a well that's a different kind of question though isn't it yeah, do you, yeah. Do you, yeah it's a little bit different go ahead oh no oh, which which is your favorite so probably emma but you know every time i reread one then that one's my favorite until i reread another one mm-hmm. uh, and i also i have a way of thinking about jane austen's novels that i don't it doesn't map onto how I think about the works of any author whose works I care about, because usually they're the, they're in the novels that I love. I love George Eliot's Middlemarch. Um, and I quite like and admire several other novels by George Eliot works, about which I am very different. But with Jane Austen's six major novels, they really feel so much to me like creations of the same mind. I, I feel about them the way I feel about Beethoven's string quartets or Mozart symphonies. It's not, you don't, you don't need to have a favorite because they are not that they're all the same. Cause I don't mm-hmm. think Jane Austen's novels are all the same, but they're, they're all from the same imagination. And so I think of them almost like a six part work rather than, than six separate novels. Mm-hmm. So interesting. I have another short passage, very, this one's really short, from Emma on our theme of resilience. This is one of my favorites. Emma and Harriet are in town and they're looking at at the goings-on. Emma went to the door for amusement. Much could not be hoped from the traffic of even the busiest part of Highbury. Mr. Perry walking hastily by, Mr. William Cox letting himself in at the office door, Mr. Cole's carriage horses returning from exercise or a stray letter boy on an obstinate mule were the liveliest objects she could presume to expect. And when her eyes fell only on the butcher with his tray, a tidy old woman traveling homewards from shop with her full basket, two curs quarreling over a dirty bone, and a string of dawdling children round the baker's little bow window eyeing the gingerbread, she knew she had no reason to complain and was amused enough, quite enough, still to stand at the door. And this is my favorite sentence, this next one. A mind lively and at ease can do with seeing nothing and can see nothing that does not answer. And I think that's words to us all for this um, open-ended period of, 
of solitude that we all have. We can look out our windows, we can walk in our neighborhoods, we can view the progress of vegetation as we were saying earlier, but we can also rest our eyes on each other, um, on the people in our world and find something that will lift our spirits and keep us going. Mm, that's beautiful. Um, yeah, that's really lovely. Do you, um, Joy on Facebook is asking what class Jane Austen belonged to herself. Would she have been considered gentry or something else? <laughs> yeah, this is a terrific question and, and gets at all those, those nuances um, um, that I was talking about a bit earlier. So Jane Austen's parents, um, Jane Austen's mother, Cassandra Lee Austen, um, was not a wealthy woman herself, but she was part of an extended family that included landowning people. And Jane Austen's father uh, was a clergyman, so had a university education and was considered a gentleman on the basis of that, but he did not have money or property of his own. And so the two Austen parents had eight children and they lived in the, the parsonage, essentially, the the building that came along with um, Reverend Austin's clergy position. And when he retired from that, they moved to the city of Bath and had rented accommodation because they didn't own a house that they could live in after that point. And when Reverend Austin died not long after the move to Bath, then suddenly his widow, Jane's mother, and Jane and Cassandra, neither of whom were married, they had very, very little to live in. And they bounced around for several years. They lived with this brother. They lived with that brother. Um, it was a really unsettled time in Jane Austen's life. And so even though she was the daughter of a gentleman in the sense that her father was an educated man and a member of the respected profession of the clergy, nevertheless, Jane Austen had very little to live on. And during those years, she wrote very little fiction because she didn't have the, the kind of consistency of routine um, that she needed. So you see different terms. Sometimes scholars will say Jane Austen was part of the pseudo gentry, or I'm, I guess Americans would express that as the sort of gentry, um, but kind of on kind of on the edge there. Um, Jane Austen chose in her novels to depict characters mostly from her own social level upwards, but not super high. And there are only a few characters in all of Austen's novels who have aristocratic titles. And mostly Austen is, is writing about um, people who are Mr. rather than Lord, um, certainly rather than Duke. Um, and with the exception of Emma Woodhouse, who is handsome, clever, and rich, and who stands to inherit her father's property, doesn't need to worry about money, except for Emma, Jane Austen almost exclusively wrote about heroines who have you know, more education than money more beauty than money, more good sense than money. Um, so financial anxiety is, is something that often knew well herself and that she depicts in, in various ways in her novels. Um, uh, this is interesting too. Joe's also asking um, about books popular at Austin's time that she enjoyed reading that may have influenced her. And then maybe we'll, maybe this will be our last question or comment. Oh, um, Jane Austen loved to read. She read widely. And this is one of the greatest things that her father, Reverend Austen, did for her and Cassandra. He let them read whatever they wanted. 
and that was very unusual for fathers towards their daughters um, in the late 18th century when Jane Austen was growing up. It was much more typical um, for mothers and fathers to protect their young daughters against reading the real works of Shakespeare, for example, with all that body content, to protect their daughters against reading the racier 18th century novels, etc. And Reverend Austen owned 500 books himself, which was quite a lot for someone of his social standing and his wealth. And as we know, Jane Austen and all the family members borrowed books from friends, um, belonged to the private circulating libraries of the day, borrowed books from those libraries and, and read as much as they liked. Um, we know because Jane Austen gives admiring shout outs to women writers in the preceding generation, such as Frances Burney and writers of her, of her own generation, including Mariah Edgeworth. We know that Jane Austen admired um, novels by both women and men. And one of her favorite novels was Sir Charles Grandison by Samuel Richardson. So you can, you can see aspects of influence in Austen's writings from, from those authors and from the other works that Austen knew well. She, as a clergyman's daughter, as a devout Anglican, um, Church of England a member, she knew the King James translation of the Bible. She knew the Book of Common Prayer. Um, she worshiped herself. And three prayers are credited to her, um, believed to have been written by her. Which is all to say, you can find traces of influence and also explicit acknowledgments by her of, of works that mattered to her. And all that said, Jane Austen reinvented the novel completely. And there, there are no contemporaries of hers who have had the lasting effect um, that she had, including all the novelists of her time who were selling way, way more books than she was. In Jane Austen's lifetime, she had this much fame and Sir Walter Scott had that much fame. And now it's reversed. You know, no one reads mm -hmm. Sir Walter Scott for pleasure, hardly anyone. And Jane Austen is an international global phenomenon. Um, and people do actually read Austen. It's not just that people love film adaptations and screen adaptations, although they yeah. certainly do. Yeah, no, I think our audience tonight is actually cares more about the books than the movie, which is different. I thought the movie is quite is quite enjoyable, though. But um, so, um, well, I think we'll close. But I want to thank everyone for all your questions. And I especially want to thank Juliet. This has been really lovely. And I feel um, that I've learned quite a lot. And also, um, listening to you read those passages gave me sort of a new sense of the richness that is all around us, even when we are shut in our houses. So um, thank you for that. And um, thank you to the Ivy Bookshop. And I think we will close out. <laughs> so have a good evening. Everybody stay well. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.